0: Well, it's a joy for me to have the opportunity to be here this morning. My name is Steve Lindenmeyer. I'm one of the pastors here at Citadel Square. And uh, if you've been with us for a while, you kind of know where we are at Citadel Square. We're in the middle of a series on Revelation. And as we, just a second, there we go. we're in the, in the middle of a series in Revelation, and, uh, but right now, as we've gone through the seven churches in Revelation, we're going to take a break for this week and next week. I have the privilege of preaching this morning, and then Pastor AJ will be up next week. And then we enter the Advent season. Can you believe it's already Christmas season? I mean, I, people were putting up their dex- decorations the day after Halloween, and I don't understand that. But I'm glad that we're entering into the Advent season. For us, it's a special time as we look forward to the coming of Christ. Not only as we celebrate it during Christmas, but the coming of Christ yet to come in the second coming. So we'll have a series during Advent as we prepare our hearts and our minds for that. And then uh, we'll jump back into Revelation in the new year. So uh, hold tight, it's coming, we will finish. And I'm so thankful, uh, by the way, for Steve and, and all the work that goes into preparing week after week to bring God's word. I know that I'm encouraged and challenged and lifted up And I'm sure you are as well, so thankful for the work that he puts in and the way that he ministers to us week after week. So this morning, I want to start with a question. And here's the question that I have for you this morning, that if you could describe your personal relationship with Jesus Christ using only one word this morning, what would it be? Where are you at with the Lord? one word to describe your personal relationship with the Lord this morning. What would that one word be? Bring it to mind. Maybe write it down if you're taking notes or jot it down in your phone. What is the one word that would describe your personal relationship with Jesus? If I'm honest, matter of fact, I did this in a staff evaluation this week, I said dry. That that would have been my one word. Is this a season of where you feel spiritually dry? Maybe you would say, Distant? That you feel like your walk with the Lord right now is somewhat distant. Maybe you would say it's vibrant. I'm experiencing joy and satisfaction in my relationship with Christ. Maybe you would say it's it's close. Or maybe you would just say, man, it's struggling. We all hit those times in our walk with the Lord where it's just a season of challenge and struggle and difficulty and hardship. Or maybe if you're here this morning or if you're tuning in online, maybe your word would be non-existent. I imagine there are some who have joined us this morning that would say, I don't really have a personal relationship with Christ. I'm not sure what that looks like or what that's supposed to look like. And so maybe my word would be, hyphenated word, albeit it would be non-existent. What would be the one word that describes your personal relationship with Christ this morning? Well, this morning, I want us to jump in and dive into a text that is going to lead us to the place of closeness and intimacy and abiding with Jesus Christ. Not only are we going to see through this passage what it means to abide in Christ, but we're also going to see the promises and the benefits and the blessings that come as we do abide in Christ. So take your Bibles and turn to John 15. John 15, we're going to look at the first 11 verses in this chapter of John 15. Now these are going to be on the screen for you, What I'm gonna do is read through the entire 11 verses so that we can get the big picture of the story, the metaphor, the parable that Jesus is teaching. And then we're gonna go back and look at the different aspects of what it means to abide in Christ and what are the blessings that come as we do. John 15, verses one through 11. Follow along with me. It says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Father, this is your word. And we come this morning with expectant hearts that you would use your word and that you would not just increase our knowledge, but that you would transform our lives, that you would use this time of worship and this time of studying your word to make us more like you. God, we confess that wherever we come into this place this morning, if we're dry or if we're distant or if we're struggling, or if we're feeling close and tight with you, God, wherever we are this morning, we want to abide in you. And we thank you this morning that it's possible because you abide in us. So would you teach us this morning? Would you teach us through your word, by your Holy Spirit, that we might walk away from this place more like you than when we entered the building? And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we jump into John 15, because we haven't been teaching through the book of John, it's important that I give you a little context, because this chapter, John 15, you'll find it in a very interesting place in Scripture. Jesus has been with his disciples now for about two and a half or three years. He's coming to the very end of his public ministry, and the day after this setting that we're reading about in John 15, the next day he will be crucified on the cross, He's poured his life into the 12 disciples. He's taught them. He's ministered to them. They've served and ministered together. They've done life together. And now he comes to the place where not, in in not many hours from now, he's about to die on the cross for their sins, for your sins, and for my sins. And in John 12, just three chapters earlier, we see Jesus making his way into Jerusalem. He knows why he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem to die. He's going to Jerusalem to be crucified on the cross, and yet he goes willingly because he has us on his mind. We see in John chapter 12 that he comes to the disciples and he he informs them that he's going to die. Now, the disciples, much like you and I, don't always get it. And they listened to him. They heard his words, but they didn't really understand what was going to happen in John 12. And then you come to the place in your Bible in John, and it's chapters 13 through 17, that theologians call this the upper room discourse. It's Jesus' farewell address. It's the last opportunity that Jesus has to gather his 12 disciples together and to teach them and instruct them for the last time before his death on the cross. Actually, in John 13, leading up to this passage that we're going to be in this morning, we see Jesus do the unthinkable. Jesus, the designated leader of this band of men, Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he gets down and washes the feet of his disciples to demonstrate that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then in John 13, we see something else, the unthinkable, happen. It's when one of the 12 betrays Jesus. He betrays him, and he actually leaves the upper room where the disciples had gathered to go turn Jesus over to his accusers. We come to John 14, and the disciples needed some encouragement at this moment. Jesus is talking about leaving them, and they're up in arms. What are we going to do? One of their own had left them, and they're thinking, what are we going to do? And Jesus comes to them in John 14 in the same upper room conversation and farewell address, and, and he talks to them about the Holy Spirit. I am going to leave you, but one will remain that is better than I because he's able to live within you, and there will be one, the comforter, the counselor, the paraclete, the one who comes alongside, and he's going to take up residence within you, the Holy Spirit. Then in John 15, we just read, in John 16, the the chapter right after John 15, you can count, Jesus now reminds them of who the Holy Spirit is and the person and the work of the Holy Spirit as an ongoing comfort to them. And then in John 17, the last of the upper room discourse, Jesus prays for his disciples. If you've never read this prayer that Jesus prays for the disciples, go read it in John 17. It's what Jesus is praying for you. And right in the middle of it, right in the middle of the upper room discourse is this chapter that we come to this morning in John 15, where Jesus is talking about him being the vine and God being the branches. And all good storytellers, they take significant time to develop the characters within the story, right? Have you ever seen a story or watched a movie or a TV program where the characters aren't developed that well, and it's just not a very good story? My wife and I watched one of the Hallmark Christmas uh, shows last night. It was terrible character development. We're like, now who was that and why? This was totally B rated. We think they filmed the whole thing in one day. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus goes to great lengths to prepare the characters and to identify who they are so that we can understand the story at large. So, who are the characters in this story that we just read together? You have Jesus and he's the vine. You have God the Father and he's the vine dresser or the gardener, the one that tends the garden. And then you have branches. Branches, there's actually two types of branches, one that bears fruit and the other that doesn't bear fruit. And the branches in the story are, guess who? Me and you. And as we dive into the text now, I want you to keep those characters in mind because if we don't understand who the vine is and and who the gardener or the vine dresser is and who the branches are, we're not going to really understand the parable and the metaphor that Jesus has for us this morning. I think you follow it. It's, It's pretty clear by the master. Storyteller. Let's dive into verse 1. Are you there with me? John 15, it's on the screen behind me. Jesus says, This is Jesus speaking. It's important that you know that because Jesus starts in verse 1 by saying, I am. Stop. We're not even going to read the rest of the verse because there's so much significance. It's two words and three letters that's power-packed with meaning and significance when Jesus says, I am. As a matter of fact, if you know anything about the book of John, uh, the apostle John, the, the disciple John is writing this to help people who don't know Jesus to come to know him and to place their faith and their trust in him. He's also writing John so that those who do know Jesus and have a relationship with him can be encouraged and established and strengthened in their faith. That was the two main reasons that John wrote the book of John. And he starts this chapter in John 15 with Jesus saying, I am. Now this word, I am, is throughout the book of John because Jesus is trying to communicate to us, who are you, Jesus, and what does it matter? Not only do we see it here in John 15, but it's the end of a string, a lineage of times in the book of John where Jesus uses these same words for you and me to understand who he is. In John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. In John 8, he says, I am the light of the world. In John 10, he says, I am the door for the sheep. Again in John 10, I am the good shepherd. In John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. And in John 14, I am the way and the truth, and the life. This is who Jesus is. Do you know him? What difference is it making in your life? This was such a powerful pack two words and three letters, that at one point in John 8, Jesus said, I am, before Abraham was born, I am. And when those words, I am, came off of the lips of Jesus, they took up stones to to stone him and to kill him, because this was a claim of deity. In saying, I am, Jesus is saying, I am God. And this morning, we're going to see him claim that I am the true vine. Jesus claims to be the true vine, meaning that there are other vines. There are other ways that you can find satisfaction and fulfillment, or at least that you can look for satisfaction and fulfillment outside of Christ. But Jesus is saying, I am the true vine." I am the place of satisfaction. I am the place of health. I am the source of fruit bearing in and through your life. Jesus is the vine. But we also see in this verse that God, the Father, and my Father is the vine dresser. Another version says the gardener, the tender of the the vineyard, the one who looks after the vines and the branches and makes sure that they're growing as they are supposed to and bearing fruit as they should. And we see in this first verse, the Father and the Son working together for the good of the branches, that's me and you, and the fruit that will come from our lives. Isn't it a beautiful picture? That God... The Father and God the Son, so care for us. It says He knows every hair on our head. He's intimately acquainted with all of your ways. He knows you and He loves you and He cares for you that you may be healthy and that you may bear much fruit. Well, let me ask you a question this morning. Why do vineyards exist? Why do vineyards exist? wine yeah they they exist to bear fruit that fruit is used to make wine and grape juice right vineyards exist they're, i don't know if you've ever been to a vineyard but they're not all that they're not all that pleasing to the eyes it's not like you take a selfie behind a, a vine they have a purpose the purpose of a vineyard is to bear fruit it's not for its aesthetic beauty there's a purpose to be had and that purpose is to bear fruit and so let's take a look as we go further at the dialed in and meticulous focus that the vine dresser has on making sure that the vineyard does what he created it to do. Verse two Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may, that it may bear more fruit. You see what happens, what's going on here in verse two? There's two types of branches. There are the branches that bear fruit and there are the branches that do not bear fruit, the fruitless branches. And the interesting thing to look at in this verse, chapter 2, is that God the Father, the vine dresser, is acquainted with both. And he actually is involved and engaged with both types of branches and he takes action with both types of branches. To one, he prunes and to the other, he cuts off. Now, isn't it interesting that both branches get cut? One gets cut off and thrown away. The other branch gets cut back. And let me just tell you this morning, getting cut off, bad. Getting cut back, good. Does it hurt in the moment, perhaps? Yes. But there's a purpose for the pruning shears of God when they come on our life. And the purpose is that we may bear more fruit. But you see, there are branches that are cut and they're cut off. And as we look further down in, uh, I think it's uh, verse 8, we'll get there in a minute, that those branches are not only cut off, but they're, they're thrown away and burned. The best way that I can describe these branches in this parable is these are superficial Christians. These are those who claim to have a relationship with Jesus, but they've never truly come to him in repentance and faith. They may be in church... But they're not in the vine, and there's a radical difference between the two. The evidence of their superficiality is their fruitlessness. Much like the people that Paul describes in Titus 1, verse 16, when he says, they claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. This verse cut to my heart when I was young as a freshman in college. I had claimed to know Jesus. But it was a cultural, superficial Christianity. They claim to know him, but by their actions, they deny him. They profess faith in Christ, but there is no inward or outward fruit that would back their claim. And the father, the vine dresser, the gardener stands alone as the judge. The vine dresser alone knows the thoughts and the motives and the intentions of the heart. And he and he alone can come and cut the branches that are not bearing fruit. Matter of fact, Jesus had already told the disciples just three chapters earlier in John 12, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. And he was indicating that that judge is God the Father. What does the vine dresser do with the fruitless? Branches. He takes them away, according to verse 6. I had it wrong a minute ago, not verse 8. And according to verse 6, these branches wither, and they are gathered, and they are thrown into the fire, and they are burned. And this symbolizes the eternal judgment of all who are outside of Christ. And let me just plead with you. Let me implore you. Let me beg you this morning that if your word to describe your personal relationship with Jesus was non-existent. Then I urge you to come to Christ, to place your faith and your trust in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that can forgive you of all of your sins, past, present, and future. Well, what does Jesus do now? Or what does God the Father do now with the fruitful branches? He prunes them. But why? Why does Jesus prune? the branches that are bearing fruit, because he wants them to bear more fruit. He makes cuts to both. And you may be asking this morning, what type of fruit is Jesus referring to here? And actually, commentators are divided in, in their interpretation of this. Now, some would say it's the fruit of a righteous life as Philippians 1 talks about, as Paul teaches us in Philippians 1, or or others will say, Well, it's got to be the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. Isn't that what God's referring to? Doesn't He want that to be exemplified in my life? Or does it mean spiritual fruit that comes from evangelism and discipleship as we share the gospel with those who don't know Him and see them embrace Christ and trust Christ? Well, in my study of the context, I can say this it can't be any less. Than evangelism and discipleship, but it's probably more. So I'm going to take the both-and approach. I believe that the fruit that Jesus is talking about is not only the fruit that comes in your life through abiding Him, through displaying the fruit of the Spirit, but it's also the life that comes out. It's it's the fruit that comes out of your life as you have opportunities to be a blessing to those around you. It's it's the fruit in and the fruit through your life. The point is that God wants us to be fruitful Christians. And so what does he do? He prunes. Who does he prune? This verse says he prunes every branch, every fruitful branch. No one escapes. He prunes through hardship and difficulty. He prunes through challenging life situations and circumstances. He prunes when he brings you to the place where you have no other option than to trust in him. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to that spot in your life? Do you look back on those seasons of your life now and realize it was some of the most accelerated spiritual growth I've ever experienced? It was when I was in the valley. It was when the pruning shears were heavy on my soul. It's in those moments that Jesus takes you from immaturity to maturity in, the spiritual, in your spiritual life. He prunes every fruitful branch. And it says, he, he looks at the branches that have a little fruit, and he prunes them that they may bear much fruit. So one of the best ways to bear a lot of fruit is to begin with a little fruit, right? What is God teaching you right now? What is the one act of obedience that he's calling you to make? What is your next step with Jesus that he's calling you to step forward in faith, John Piper summarizes, summarizes this whole context that we're looking at with the two branches in this way. He says, the key is to realize that in the Gospel of John, there are believers who are not true believers, and there are disciples who are not true disciples. And there is the chosen 12, even though one of them, Jesus says, was the betrayer, even calls him the devil. In the same way, there are branches who are in the vine, but not in the the vine. Verse 3. A great word of encouragement for us this morning. If you are truly in Christ and in the vine, verse 3 says, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And in order to understand verse 3, we must understand the context as I laid it out for you just a minute ago, just a few moments earlier in this same Farewell address with Jesus and his disciples, one of them, Jesus, uh, Judas, not Jesus. One of them, Judas, betrayed Jesus and physically literally left the room where they had gathered to go betray Jesus into the hand of his accusers. That must have created some angst among the disciples, don't you think? That must have created some sense of unsettledness among the disciples. They were a band of brothers. They, were, they had spent three years together, living together, serving together, feeding the multitudes together, traveling from city to city together. And now one of their own, Judas, betrays Jesus and leaves the room. Why is this significant when Jesus says, you are clean because of my word? The reason that this is significant is because two chapters earlier in John 13, as Jesus was washing the disciples' feet, now in this stage of the story, Judas is still in the room. It's all 12 of them. And in John 13, if you're looking at your Bible, just flip back one page. It's John 13, 10, and 11. This won't be on the screen. Look at it with me if you can. Jesus said to him, he's talking to Peter, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And then he says this to all 12, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. With Judas in the room, he says, all of you are clean but for one. Now Judas has left the room and we come to John 15 verse 3 and he says, you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. What he's telling the disciples and what he's telling us if we have true faith in Christ is that you do not need to worry. You will not be as Judas. You may be pruned, but you will never be cut off. When you feel the pruning shears on your life, you can rest assured that it is for my good, for my glory, and for your good, and for your fruitfulness. Because all throughout the book of John, it's a great book to read if you're struggling with your assurance of salvation, if you're wondering, am I truly in the vine? Throughout John, he says phrases like this in John 1, but to all who had received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That's you if you've trusted in Christ, that you are called a child of God. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. John 6, all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I lose nothing of all that he has given me. John 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is the assurance of those who are in the vine, who are truly in Christ, and it's a great promise and nourishment to your soul. One had left, but those remained, Jesus says, and you are clean. You will be pruned, i.e. sanctified, but you have been cleansed, i.e., justified and the word my friends is essential you are cleansed by the word which I have spoken to you the author of Hebrews says the word of God is living and active it's sharper than any two edged sword it penetrates to dividing soul and spirit and judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart when is the last time that God has used his word to press hard on your heart And create change in your life. And now we come to the apex. Verse 4. What does Jesus say to us this morning? Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Abide in me. That's the point of the metaphor and the parable this morning. It's a command, not a suggestion. Eh, if you feel like it, abide in me. Might be a good idea. No, it's a command. Abide in me. Abide in me. Allow the sap of nourishment and strength and vitality flow from me through my word and through my Holy Spirit and bring health and fruitfulness to your life. And it's a command with a promise. But this is not something, when Jesus commands us to abide in him, it's not something he wants from us. It's something that he wants for us. The Greek word for abide is meno. And this Greek word, as you study it, the word meno means to continue, to dwell, to endure, to remain, to hold fast, to stay put. Believer in Christ, this morning Jesus wants to to tell you, remain in him, abide in him, stay put, do not waver, do not give up, remain, hold fast, and abide in him. And the reason that this is significant for you and me, and the reason that it is significant for the disciples, or was as Jesus was teaching them, is because up until this point, when Jesus came to the disciples, he would often use the, the, the command or the phrase, follow me. Come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. But here we come to the end of his life with the promised Holy Spirit and Jesus changes the command. He changes the wording from follow me to abide in me. What's the difference? You ever thought about that? What's the difference between following and abiding? Well, I could demonstrate it to you with two fists. When we follow Jesus, We can follow closely, we can follow from a distance. We can speed up in our following, we can shrink back in our following. If Jesus turns, it may take us a minute to follow. If he goes that way, we may not be on the same path. We can follow closely, we can follow from a distance. But let me show you what it means to abide, and it's totally different. This is what it means to abide in Christ. When Jesus speeds up, we have to speed up with him. When Jesus slows us down, I know you hate it. You gotta slow down with him. When Jesus turns left, we go left. When Jesus turns right, we go right. That this is the new relationship that he's calling us into by the Holy Spirit is that we can now abide in Christ, not just follow. Not from a distance, not from two different lanes. It's to abide in Christ, to remain in him. What is the state of your personal relationship with Jesus this morning? Are you simply following Or are you at the place where you're abiding? Because a branch out of contact with the vine is a lifeless branch. But it's awesome that it's a two-way relationship. Jesus says, not only are you to abide in me, but I am going to abide in you. Jesus has done the heavy lifting. Jesus has initiated a relationship with us. Jesus has forgiven us of all of our sins. Jesus has promised us a hope and a future. Jesus has imparted to us himself in the Holy Spirit, and he's drawing us now to ask us to do our part to abide in him. And we do that primarily through his word. Believer in Christ, stay. Continue. Dwell. Remain, endure. The word abide, as we read these 11 verses, it's a power of observation this morning. Great Bible study skills. The word abide in these 11 verses is used 10 times. The word fruit is used five times. So what is the emphasis of this passage? It's abiding and bearing fruit. But what is emphasized more? By the power of deduction, Abiding is emphasized twice as much as fruit-bearing. What does that say to us this morning? If we spend more time thinking about the fruit from our lives and how we can engage the lost world with the gospel and less time focusing on abiding in Christ, then we're out of balance. If we as a church spend all of our time strategizing and planning and thinking how to engage the city or how to engage our neighborhood or how to engage the lost world, and we don't ever talk about abiding in Christ, then we are out of balance. 10 times abide, five times fruit. And yet the reality is as we abide in Christ, actively fruit will come. Verse one through four just sets us up with the command and the promise to abide in him as he abides in you. But as we finish the text, we're gonna see four promises that Jesus makes to us as a result of abiding in Him. And if you're taking notes, I'm going to say them, don't worry, I'll repeat them. Here's what comes from abiding in Christ. Abundant fruit, much fruit, abundant fruit, powerful prayer, overflowing love, and complete joy. Did you get that? Abundant fruit, powerful prayer, overflowing love, and complete joy. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears a little fruit. Oh, did I read that wrong? Oh yeah, that's not what it says. He it is that bears much fruit. I'm gonna wake you up this morning. Say that with me. Much fruit. Much fruit. He it is that bears not a little fruit, but he it is that bears much fruit. Whoever abides in me. Here's the invitation. Whoever. You're a branch this morning. Welcome. Whoever abides in me, he it is that will bear much fruit. It goes on in verse 8 to say, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Have you ever wondered what it means? Like Christians talk about, we just need to glorify the Lord. We sing that, we worship, we glorify the Lord. Well, what does that mean? And I've often wondered, what does that mean? And here Jesus says in verse eight, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. One way that we glorify the Lord is by bearing fruit both in and through our lives. As a matter of fact, I will be so bold this morning to say that this is the purpose for which you were created, to bear fruit for his glory. And you might say, well, that's a pretty bold claim, Steve. And I can say, well, I didn't make it. Jesus did, John 15, 16. It's in the same chapter, but we didn't go all the way to the end in our slides. Listen to this or look down on your page, John 15, 16. It says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Isn't this awesome? I chose you that you may go and bear fruit. It is the purpose for which you were created and drawn into a personal relationship with Jesus. It's not about you. It's not about you, it's about what God wants to do through you. He's gotten it to you, the truth, the gospel. He's gotten it to you so that he can get it through you to a lost and dying world. And then I love it. He says, not only will you bear fruit so that whatever you ask, uh, sorry, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. You get the picture? God uses me to bear fruit, the fruit that comes from my life, then it abides in Christ. And what's the promise for those who abide in Christ? They're going to bear fruit. And if they bear fruit that abides in Christ, what's the promise for those who abide in Christ? They're going to bear fruit. So as I abide in Christ today, not only do I have a chance to impact this generation, but I have an impact to impact, I have the opportunity to impact future generations to come. What an awesome thought. The fact that the disciples abided in Jesus 2,000 years ago, we are now sitting here talking about Jesus because the branches abided, fruit came that abided, that bore fruit, that abided, that bore fruit. And here we are today. God wants to use you to bear much fruit, abundant fruit. What are your God-sized prayers this morning? I heard a pastor say, what are you trusting God to do that is doomed to failure unless God is in it? That's a great question. What are you trusting God to do that is doomed to failure unless God shows up? We're going to jump down to verse 7. The first promise was abundant fruit. The second promise is powerful prayer. Powerful prayer. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, some of you just heard that and like, ooh, I just got the golden ticket. I just got a genie in a bottle. I just rub the bottle, genie comes out, and I say, this is what I wish for. I want a Ferrari for Christmas. I don't think that that's what God intends when he says, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Because there is a context. When my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. Because when the word of Christ dwells within us, we're going to be conformed to his image and we're going to pray back to him, his will. Psalm 37, four says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Most people read, it, oh, God's going to give me the desires of my heart. Don't forget the first part of the verse. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart because your heart will be shaped into the image of his heart And you'll be praying back to him, his will. Certainly he will give that to you. And I know part of his will is that you not only abide in Christ, but bear fruit. And that's done through his word. And you might ask, well, Steve, how is that done through his word? I'm gonna say this in 30 seconds. I'll try. Here's how you abide in Christ through his word. Use your hand as an illustration. Everybody's got one. Use your hand as an illustration. You'll always remember this. There's five ways. You have five, four fingers and a thumb, five appendages. Here's how you abide in his word. You hear it. You hear it when you're at church on Sunday. You may hear it on a podcast or something you listen to in your car. You hear God's Word. You read it. You read it like a book. You read it from cover to cover. You read it one chapter at a time. January is coming. New time for Bible reading plan. Read it. You study it. We take a deep dive into the Scripture and engage with Him over what it means, and we look at commentaries to help us see what wiser people than us have discerned. We study God's Word. We memorize it. We memorize God's Word and we hide it in our hearts. And the thumb, which is the opposing appendage, it's important that it's that way. It's that we meditate on it. That which we hear, we think about deeply. That which we read, we think about deeply. That which we study, we meditate on and think about how it applies to our life. And that which we memorize, we meditate on. And in so doing, we will have a firm grasp on the Word of God. And this is the way that the Word abides in you in those simple-to-remember, sometimes hard-to-do ways. Powerful prayer. Number three, overflowing love. This is what Jesus promised to to us as we abide in him, is overflowing love. As the Father has loved me, verse 9, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Let's keep going, verse 10. If you keep my commands, my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Do you see what Jesus is telling us right here? That Jesus loves us. Jesus loves you with the exact same love that the Father had for him. What kind of love is that? It's an amazing love. It's a gracious and compassionate love. It's a sacrificial love. It's an unconditional love. It's a love that transcends our understanding. And that's the same love that Jesus has for you. And if we were to keep reading in verse 12, it says this. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you it's overflowing love. The love comes to Jesus from the Father. The love comes to us from Jesus. And what does Jesus command us? That that love should go out from you to one another. How do we love one another in the body of Christ here? How do we love our neighbors with the love of Christ? How do we love those that know him and those that don't? The only way we can do it is if we know, understand, and apply God's love for us. In 1 John it says, we love because he first loved us. That one of the fruits of abiding in Christ is not only to be the recipient of love, it's to be the conduit from which his love flows from him through us to a lost and dying world around us. All men will know that you are disciples by your Love for one another. And then lastly, not only do we experience abundant fruit, not only do we get to experience powerful prayer. Would you call your prayer life powerful? Maybe we need to abide in Christ. Not only do we get to experience overflowing love, but lastly, we get to experience complete joy. Our version this morning says full joy. Joy. Another version says complete joy. This was the purpose of Jesus saying all these things to us was to maximize our joy. You may hear this this morning. Abiding in Christ is just so hard. And I'm just, I'm not a morning person. And I don't really like to read the Bible and uh, bearing fruit. I don't want to talk to my neighbor. I know I should. And no, Jesus says, I want to maximize your joy. I want you to have the full extent of joy in your life. And the only way you're going to know true, full, and complete joy is when you abide in Christ and when you allow him to bear fruit in and through your life. There is no joy quite like the joy of participating with Jesus in the work that he's doing in the world. Just this last week, I had an opportunity to to share the gospel, to explain the message of Christ to somebody that didn't know, had never heard. And there was this immense joy that came through just being available, just being a conduit from his blessing, of his blessing that flowed from him through this broken vessel to the world around us. Joy incredible joy, intense joy. This is what God wants for you. So much so that in the prayer that Jesus prays just two chapters later in John 17, he's praying for the disciples and he says, I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of joy within them. That's what Jesus wants for you this morning. How do we get there? By abiding in Christ Realizing that he abides in us, and as we do so, the promise that comes is abundant fruit, it's powerful prayer, it's overflowing love, and it's complete joy. How would you describe your relationship with Christ this morning? If I were to ask Jesus, Jesus, what do you want for us in our relationship for you this morning? I think Jesus would say, abide. Abide in me because what I want for you is this, not this. Would you come to Christ this morning and abide in him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy that was poured out onto the cross where you made a way for us. To now live in an abiding relationship with you. God, we worship you this morning for that reality. We confess that we fall short. And every time we fall back, you run towards us, just as the Father ran to the prodigal Son. That you run towards us and you embrace us and you love us. And we rejoice in that reality this morning. Help us, Lord Jesus to abide in you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.